Coming up next, more like Jane Airhead. <laughs> more like Charlotte Brontosaurus. <laughs> Welcome to the Booking. My name is Nathan Alberson, your humble and obedient host. Hey, hey, Brandon. Hey, Nathan. That's Brandon's voice. Oh, yeah, that's Brandon. No, it's Nathan's no, no, voice. No, 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 no. This is Brandon's voice. Hey, hey, hey I'm Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm drooling on myself. Fun fact, folks. Brandon <laughs> thought that he could take on the master. He thought he could just. Boy, did he ever do it successfully? Because not only did he get the voice right, he managed to drool while he did it. He actually started to drool. I was just channeling you so much. Mm-hmm. I just started yeah, drooling. It was, it was a perfect himself. impression. Have we introduced? We haven't introduced anybody. No. no, we've introduced Brandon. I'm Nathan, your humble and obedient host. That's Brandon. He's your humble something or other. What are you? You're I don't know. The scholar who's a baller of reading, Ghost Brandon. And we got hey. Beastmaster Funky Town himself, the pastor who's a master of reading, Jacob Kyle Menzel. How you doing, Jake? Good. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thank you very much. Jane Austen by the great C. Bronte. Talking about J.A. Jane Austen? Nope. <laughs> False. <laughs> Incorrect. Biography of. Jane Bronte. Okay. Um, James Bronte. James Bronte. J.M. Yeah. Barry. Brandon, what book are we reading? Pizza Pan. Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre by the great Charlotte Bronte. Charlotte Bronte. Let's talk about the men in Jane Eyre's life. Let's, Let's just it. talk about them. She goes to Thornberry, Thornton. She goes to Thornton Hall and she meets up with one E. Edward. E.F. E.F. Rochester. Mm-hmm. She does. She meets him in a sneaky way. Mm-hmm. As far as storytelling goes, we don't know that she's actually met him. But we've read yes, a book before, so <laughs> maybe the morons reading this book back in the day. Didn't realize that she had met him. Didn't realize she That's an interesting thing. I wonder. I wonder. I mean, it's not that interesting, but it's kind of interesting to ponder how much of this book was just obvious the same way that it Because it's falling, you know, oh, I wonder if she's going to fall in love with Mr. Roger, you know, like stuff like that. I wonder how much of that was conventional. Created by books like this for us. Let's ask Brandon. He probably knows. Is somebody reading this book back when it came out, would they have been expecting like, oh, this is a romance. This falls into a genre. This <coughs> certain some things, she's probably going to fall in love with this Rochester guy. They're probably going to be happier ever after. She's probably going to have some travails getting there. Are they? Is this following a set enough formula that people would have kind of known their place in the story the same way that a we do? A fairy tale formula? By the that... 1830s, 40s, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think well, Jane Austen had been real. Yeah, Jane Austen was. Time, Jake really. makes a good point. This follows the Cinderella formula. Yeah. yeah. And Jane Austen had written her novels decades before this, mm-hmm. and he'd had Pamela and all those novels in the 1700s. Yeah. I rescind my stupid question. Yeah, yeah it was worth it. asking. No, I thought it was worth asking. I like to ask stupid mm, questions. That's, that's not sure what it was worth asking. <laughs> Brandon says it's not worth asking. <laughs> <laughs> so she meets this Rochester fella. Yeah, and this is kind of the million dollar question as far as I'm concerned. What did you guys think about old Rochester? Old Rachi. <sighs> I liked him at question. first, sort of. I thought he was going to be an interesting character. Did you know him as a type or as a name or as an idea? Were you no, aware that there was no. a guy named Mr. Rochester? No, before? I did not know Rochester. I did not know the name of the guy that was going to show up. In fact, I wondered, given the way the first third of the novel worked, 
I mean, I knew, but I wondered what and how. I mean, I think I told you like, oh, she's going to go work for a guy and the guy's going to fall in love with her and then a thing. But yeah, I, I, there were two separate occasions where Jake pretty much outlined what was going to happen in this book. The interesting thing was that Charlotte Bronte was always, I, I guess I'll say a little bit ahead, of, not, not necessarily ahead, but Charlotte Bronte was always more interesting, but slightly, not yeah, 100% more interesting, yeah. but like, let's say 20% more interesting than what Jake predicted. Yeah, like, she's going to get back together with Rochester. Jake predicts that. Well, yeah, but it's going to be this weird thing where he's half burned to death and blind. And yeah, I mean, like I predicted that you predicted the, the wife would burn down the, the house. That she'd burn down the house, and you that she would that? end up killing herself in the process. Yes, I did predict. Well, that. That's the only clean way out of that problem. That was absolutely right, and it was completely set up by the dream. Right, and Which and it was dream? first set up by the first time we see her without seeing her. She tries to light Mister Rochester on fire. Right. Yeah. And then she's up in the tower and then she has the dream about the about Thornton Hall being in ruins on the night before the wedding when the demon witch is in her bedroom. Well, and, and the so demon wife killing herself is just it's the only I mean, unless this is gonna be an adultery right, novel. Nope. This isn't yes, the Scarlet right. Letter, it's not the postman always rings twice, it's not so this is just the only way to solve the problem. Yeah, and the best way to solve it, and if I would have put a little more thought into it, maybe I would have gotten some injury to Rochester because the real clean way to solve it is Rochester. Yeah, he pays a price. He pays a price trying to save her. So it's not just like that old hag He's finally got like, rid of herself. He's for not, not he like had... darn the castle's on fire. Oh no! <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh well. <laughs> he actually tried to go in there and save her, and then the cost for him thinking that he could see everything so clearly was that he lost his sight. Good old like Samson, a... buddy. Yep. Some more of those. Or not themes, but just easy, <laughs> easy, uh, easy imagery for you. Low there. hanging fruit. <laughs> Low hanging, hanging fruit. fruit. Well, what we're gonna you... start doing like the uh, people want. People like that sort of stuff. People apparently. like low hanging fruit. Yeah, so we're gonna go through. We're gonna interpret all the low hanging fruit for you people. The, let's the, talk the about represents... all of the biblical allusions throughout Jane Eyre. Yes, guys. let's do it. I think the on wife... every page. What do you think that sight? How do you think that vision and sight played a thematic role in Jane Eyre? Uh... Because people see things. They all have eyeballs. They all have eyeballs. Except for Rochester at the end. Except <laughs> for Rochester at the end. But he gets them back. <laughs> we should just do the podcast in this, this kind of <laughs> For the wife, she represents the other. Is that what you people want? No. no. They want a good podcast they and we are giving it to them. not faux intelligence. Yeah. Please. Yeah. Please. The bookening caters to a more sophisticated, smarter kind of listener than that. The bookening caters However, to no one, and that's why it's not more popular. <laughs> <laughs> However, for, five, for the very affordable price of $500, you can join. The yeah, we will cater directly to you for money. Literature podcast for dummies, where we will walk all, we will, yeah, we'll walk through this stuff with you. Yeah, if you want to pay a thousand bucks. You want to know bucks, why there are biblical allusions on every page? Because Charlotte Bronte had a chip on her shoulder. Oh, yeah. Did she? And man, you could see it a mile away. Well, Why also was there French or some word that you had to look up in the dictionary on every other page? To be, she had a big chip on her shoulder. To be fair, people were smarter. Back no, then. no, 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 no. Jane Austen, ten times the, the sophistication <laughs> and ten times the simplicity. Yep, you're right. You're right. I was playing devil's advocate, and the devil was trounced. I will say. Dickens doesn't do that either. Like Dickens also didn't have the intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't. But Dickens will do like 
uh, what, what do you want to call it? He'll do references to stuff that was going on, like topical stuff that would have been topical yeah, for his readers. Yeah, that's fine. That's different. I love when I come to somebody like Dickens mm-hmm. <laughs> that there are things that I don't get because he wasn't writing for me because it was 150 years ago. He was writing I, for actual real people. That's great. I think great. I picked up on some foreshadowing. People listening to the podcast five years from now, you just heard the seed of why Jake will eventually be a, a fan of Dickens. Yeah, it was foreshadowing. Yeah. <laughs> Brendan had a dream. Jake was burning in a house. Um, I'm blind now. <laughs> Brendan's blind now. You know who it reminds me of is Brandon's favorite author, huh. Idiot Face. Yeah, that guy. You know, Dickens. The, no, 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 no. The guy that wrote the thing with the video games and stuff. Oh, oh yeah. that guy. Ernest Klein. He's like, I know a lot of references about video games and stuff, and I'm going to cater to my audience and make them feel smart by talking about the dumb <laughs> pop culture they know. That's kind of what Jane Eyre is doing, or not Jane Eyre, that's what Charlotte Bronte is doing. He's like, you know French? Well, you can feel a little smarter now. You've read these books? Well, you can feel a little smarter now. You know this vocab- this $10 vocabulary word instead of the handy-dandy five-cent word that I could have used? Well, you can feel a little smarter now. See, okay, it's so that's one cachet. way of looking at it. Maybe this is worth teasing out because it's not the way that I looked at it, pandering to smart, intelligent, sophisticated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, people. Yeah. But I just felt all the way through the chip on her shoulder, that she had such a chip on her shoulder just about being a lower class woman that she was like, every page was like, how can I prove on this page? I want to prove that I can go toe to toe with- That I'm smarter than anybody. everybody reading this book. I want you to feel dumb, <coughs> reader. Sophisticated nobleman, I want you to feel stupid, like compared to me. And, and so, and even like a lot of the wish fulfillment, even how she how she portrays, like you think about how Austin portrays people of class, society, nobility, of she's got some caricatures. She's got some Austin has, you know, oh, the fools in there. Some takedowns, yep. But Bronte reads like some sour grapes, like some like Austin's takedowns are clean. Mm-hmm. But Bronte reads like man, she just she's got a. Yeah, I couldn't really put my finger on exactly why I agree with you, but I do. I'm not sure what the evidence is exactly, but that think, chick, the 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 rich hoity-toity people that Rochester entertains for a while, there's yeah. something that feels <coughs> nasty about that section that feels yeah. a little bit like Bronte's just like, ooh. They're 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 all stupid. They're all dumber than Jane, and they all treat Jane like trash. So what's the difference between that and one of Austin's nasty type, you know, Aunt Norris or somewhere where she, where it's clear that Jane Austen herself probably knew somebody like this, probably hated their guts and wanted to take revenge forever after on them in the form of awesome literature. What's the difference? Well, okay, I'm not sure, but let's try. Well, she gives okay, okay, there are a couple maybe a couple it's just all more nuanced in Austen. Mm-hmm. I think it's just all more nuanced. It's like the the one place you talk about Helen or us uh, as the early saint and Mrs. and Aunt What's Her Face as the early villain. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Reed. Mrs. Reed. There's a lot more going on in all of those scenes to make that work. But when you hit the, those middle portions of the book, there's absolutely not the only time we see it's like those people exist for no other purpose than to show how stupid the and nobility they're are. They're just caricatures. There's not the moment like with Mrs. Reed. There's tons of moments like that. It's interesting, actually. Mrs. Reed has tons of sympathetic and or human and Very or, human moments. Yeah, just like she's There are scared. no human she's, moments with any of these other people. 
Yeah, there's not one human moment with the rest, with a lot of, there's just none. Especially and, her chief rival, Blanche. Yeah. And, She's just and cruel Austin to would give, Austin will give everybody, even the people she hates the most, a human moment or two, too. Well, and even their foibles, the things that make them nasty and annoying are relatable. Like, yeah, we, we've they, all they been there. They're, they're, yeah, you get it. Like, you understand why this person is that, is the way that they are. Mm-hmm. You know this person. It feels like a real a, a, a person, a character that lives. Well, and the, the 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 eponymous pride and prejudice is of the heroine, and Fanny has problem. Like uh, the the hero is all, always also foolish, and also has to grow, right. and also has to learn. Right. The difference between like we've said this over and over and over again in Austin that the heroes aren't people that you always use <laughs> proverbs: the wise person and the fool. Mm-hmm. But we've talked before too about how in Austin it's simply the people who grow versus the people who don't. Yeah, it's it's right? it's a uh, self awareness versus mature. no self awareness. Exactly, it's the people who mature versus the people who don't. The people who grow versus the people that don't. That's why Emma, you know, arguably one of the most annoying villains. Like she's up there with Aunt Norris at the beginning of the book. Not that bad. Yeah, but, but then she learns and grows and right. matures. And so, what separates Emma from Lydia or any number of other fools in Austin is that Emma grows. Yeah, there's a certain sweet sort of providence to it like emma's just she doesn't know why she should be selected to be the one to grow and have self-awareness but she is whereas jane Eyre herself is generally always right generally always going to tell off the dumb people in the book sort of like harry potter it's a little bit like harry potter it's way more nuanced i mean i just think charlotte bronte you can accuse her of being a proto-feminist you can accuse her of being a proto everything i do but being a proto isn't the same as being a nauto a toto. a toto. I agree 100%. And someone who would have been a feminist now still to me doesn't feel like a feminist then. In other words, she's still operating from a lot of traditional assumptions. She's still got a lot of Judeo-Christian clothing that she wraps herself in and not in a bad way, in a way that actually kind of works and gives the books yeah. a moral heft that somebody like Rawling, for example, just nope. wouldn't, wouldn't have now trying to do the same kinds of things. That's why she goes to paganism. Yeah. And... So she should, I suppose. Where were we? How did we get all? I guess we were talking about, are there any dangling threads or loops we need to close or can we talk about Rochester? We can you go were back talking to about, Rochester. Yeah. I, I think I was the one who introduced the idea of Bronte having a chip on her shoulder. Yeah, well. And I don't remember what sparked it, but well, then it was the, a digression from you trying to get us to talk about Rochester. I well, think. let's close that loop. Brandon, You do you agree that, do you think Bronte has a chip on her shoulder or what do you yeah, think about the style? Words, he was talking about the words and all that. I hadn't actually picked up on that, but- it makes sense given he hadn't he hadn't picked up on it because he Brendan's just like oh some French I um, it's great to, <laughs> oh, yes. to see somebody <laughs> who, <laughs> who can match <laughs> finally an author vocabulary rises above caliber oh hello the common bourgeois the rare woman who can actually think I say what a delightful book oh she's trying those are my thoughts you guys expressed them perfectly Um, I was going to say it makes sense from the context when we talked about that she went to that school that weird kind of progressive yeah and she had that teacher she especially admired and she wanted to be seen as valuable in his eyes but also she she was competitive and she wanted to be a successful but a respected teacher successful and respected teacher so 
I think it makes sense. I think that given her background and given her life, she definitely was a woman who had aspirations. Yeah. And that would come out in her writing because she would see herself as limited. We also said she, she was in her 20s when she wrote this, right? Yeah. Who doesn't overreach? I mean, just to have a little, maybe this is going to be like head-pattingly condescending to say, but fair. No, it's who doesn't overreach fair. in their 20s? I mean, you know, anybody that age is going to be writing beyond themselves and feeling a little insecure and trying to like throw their weight around Absolutely. a little bit. So, and so to so that extent, I can listen to my sermons but, from my 20s, please. Oh, I can't read a thing that I wrote in my 20s. I mean, yeah. I, it's yeah. you don't know what in the world you're doing at yeah. that point. But you think you, you want people to think you do. Well, Jake has a thing he always likes to quote from Ira Glass. What's the thing, the Ira Glass thing? The Ira, the Ira Glass. Ira Glass is a podcaster and radio guy. And better than that, if you don't know who Ira Glass is, he does This American Life. Yeah, he's buying basically everything you love about NPR if you love that, or everything you hate about NPR if you hate that. Mm. But anyhow, what he talks about is that you get into creative work because <coughs> you have taste and you have a desire an aspiration to produce something that you really like. And what happens is, you know, for most people, their first shot falls so far short of their tastes, what they esteem to be good, that they just quit. They just give up. And they become critics. Yeah. And what they don't realize is that it just takes a whole lot of work and elbow grease to just create (laughs) something that meets your own standards. And often everybody out there who's doing creative work both has higher tastes and standards than anything that they produce and has to have the humility to face down not just the rejection of other people, but their own rejection of what they've created and to move past it. And that's that's what it takes to be a, a creator of mm-hmm. something is the ability to to see and to keep aspiring after something that is always just sort of out of your reach. Well, and you see that with and I the reason I bring it up is because I think with a with a young writer, you can often see that they're caught somewhere in the middle of that tension and they're trying to there's a certain kind of humility that can come with age where you might still not be hitting your goal, but you're content to live kind of where you live and keep striving after it. But there's a young person thing where you're just like, I'm trying so hard to hit my goal. And that's how you get a bunch of dumb French and big vocabulary words and sort of arrogance to it as well. Mm-hmm. Air? Air? Like Jane arrogance? Arrogance, yeah. You know, I mean, there's a certain kind of person that, I don't know, that can live there and be content. The kind of person that gets stuck writing for the New York Times is somebody who has learned to write the kind of thing that stupid people think smart people sound like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's just that sort of constant overreaching stuff, garbage. I I, I can never tell how intentional it is or if it's just somebody really stupid who, you know, overreached and got the right amount of applause and just kind of continued overreaching. Or if it was somebody who just sort of cynically said, stupid people want to read things that sound like the kind of thing they think smart people sound like. And or to so, be fair, somebody who had a wife and kids to provide for and had a job and did it. I mean, I can... <laughs> sure. I, can, I, could, I, I might be I so just bold to, to throw put, a five a, put a positive spin on... Thousand million dollar words and obtuse metaphors in this in order to provide for my family because mm-hmm. people will think that that's somehow great. Yeah, I can see somebody doing well, that. Well, that's what I do. And well, who cares? We don't have to 
get into all that, but we can do another podcast about the creative process. That's but not what you do. Was that? That's not what I do. No, I swing for the fences and but home run and fall among the stars or something like I that. I swing for the fences and fall among the stars. I think that's the. Isn't that the metaphor? Yeah. You know, I will say... It's a beautiful metaphor. It's a beautiful <laughs> metaphor. Speaking of beautiful metaphors, I know what you mean. On the other hand, this is such a readable book, and I don't know that I would swap out any of that stuff because I like it's, it feels to me almost more like a feature than a bug because it's just it's just this particular voice and this particular person, and it feels both so specific. I don't know. Well, this is just no, the most... That's a great book. This is the it's most, a very readable and enjoyable book. This is the most page-turning book. I think book. that had those elements not been there, because I think actually what Jake is getting at, so I, like I said, I didn't necessarily pick up on that part, but I do think that you see it also in her philosophizing towards the end. Absolutely. And in the yeah. way that she handles the conclusions, and that is an extraordinarily immature mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no way around her it. Little... Anyone who thinks that the conclusion of this book is good is immature. Yeah. It's terrible. Agreed. Yeah. I think the book is fantastic, but the way it ends is pretty bad. Mm, agreed. So, well, it's not, it's, and it's not even the ending. Like structurally, but, the ending's okay. No, everything. But, well, this is where <clears throat> structure saves her. Is that the end? It, it all structurally works. It's just that yeah. one could have the same events happen and write about them in, in a mature way. But, yeah, but it ain't what she does. And here's the thing, and, and we say this all the time on the bookending: is it's okay to not to to not imagine that every single thing that an author did, just because it's in a book and it's old, was perfect. Right. Even Shakespeare did bad things. I think a Midsummer's Night Dream is pretty bad. Yeah. That's that's what we were dancing around and couldn't quite bring ourselves to when yeah. we did the episodes on it. I think if we were to do that episode again, we'd all be like, wow. We hated this. <laughs> this was pretty bad. Maybe we, I would <laughs> what say What was G.K. Chesterton smoking to think this was the best <laughs> Well, sometimes G.K. Chesterton's pretty play. bad. Well, he was also, smoking anti-modernism. He was yeah. smoking anti-modernism. And that's okay. Yep. Shakespeare didn't have... Everything Shakespeare did didn't have to be perfect. Well, and also, would you want it to be? That's the other thing I want to ask. square peg that you fit into the round hole of attacking your big enemy. Yeah. Which is what Chesterton was. Yeah, that's, that's all Chesterton does, which I love. <clears throat> but you know, but would you won't. would you go back and CGI walkie talkies onto the people in ET? Do people like the Star Wars special editions? I mean I actually don't mind them because I kind of grew up with them, sorry. But like Raiders of the Lost Ark, would you go back and and make the faces melting into a more convincing special effect? No. Part of the fun is the flaws, actually. Part of the fun yeah. of watching a movie like, I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark is a pretty good example of something that was filmed quickly that has these little, you know, you can see the seams sometimes. You know, Indy falls down into the snake pit, there's a reflection. You don't want them to CGI out that. And so I think in the same way, this this book, I mean, this is really obvious. Maybe this is a stupidly obvious point to make, but part of what makes it readable and fun are some of those, the very things that you might say, well, a more mature author might not necessarily do it quite that way. That's the point where you realize you're not just dealing with Jane Eyre, you're dealing with Charlotte Bronte as well, Mm -hmm. and that she's not perfect. But that's a healthy way to approach a book. Right. Because if you end up just thinking that all you're doing is reading this perfect artifact, you get to some weird places. Well, we make that point a lot, but I think this is a particularly good point to make it, because this is one of those books that's just accepted as part of not just the canon, but like the Christian canon, the homeschooling canon, the conservative (laughs) canon. Everybody loves this book. This is the kind of book that you would just unthinkingly hand to your your teenage daughter and say, hey, read this. This is a classic. And guess what? Nope. Bad idea. Because Mr. Rochester. This book has some creepy philosophy in it and some... Mr. Rochester is here to tell your fortune. (laughs) (laughs) Well, guys, let's get to it. I think we closed the other loop. 
And I don't know why closing loops is suddenly a thing that I'm obsessed with. I think because we used that phrase on an episode of Sound of Sanity. So now for me, for the next three months, everything's going to be about closing loops. Got to close those loops, Nathan. Got to close those Let's loops. open that Rochester loop. Let's open the ride. We already opened it, but now. And the Sanjin. And the, the, the Sanjin. That's our theme for the rest of this episode. Mm-hmm. Rochester. Let's <clears throat> talk about him. Well, my first impression of Rochester was he's not like I've seen in the movies because he's supposed to be ugly in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at least that's the way he's described. Now, we ha- I had an interesting conversation recently with my wife and another lady. Mm-hmm. They were telling you you were ugly. Yes. No. They were actually telling me that apparently Michael Fassbender, according to them, is not a good-looking guy. Oh, I, I think he's... Interesting. I think he's pretty good-looking. Yeah. And so that they thought he was a good Mr. Rochester. Huh. Are we going to watch the Fassbender movie, by the way, guys? We can. I think so. It's a great movie. I, think, I thought it was a good movie. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Do you think it was a good movie? I've never seen it. I'd like to watch it for the looking. Uh, so anyways, that was my... F- and so we talked about that. I was surprised. Hmm. Well, Brandon, you were coming to this I was the offended first because I obviously look so much like Michael Fassbender. Exactly. If people need a handy sort of handle to think about what Brandon looks like, just imagine Michael Fassbender, maybe put 20% more muscles on him. Yeah. And... 30% more height. 30% more height. Yeah. <laughs> and if he's like 40% more fashionable. Yeah. You've got Brandon. That's, that's me. Mm-hmm. So I was like, man, well, I guess. I guess. He's He's not good looking, but then what does that say about me? What does that say about you? No, so I'm I'm sure if we do the looking, we'll talk about this. It's interesting things to say about Hollywood and how they always will. Everything's sexualized. Mm -hmm. So even people who are supposed to be ugly become sexual objects. Oh, they do. They do. It's like the the, the girl with the glasses that's supposed to be ugly in the movie because she's wearing glasses. So that was interesting to me. So here we have this. It's a... It's a unique and interesting take on the romantic hero. He's supposed to be ugly. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not supposed to be physically appealing at first. In fact, she says that were he physically appealing, she's sure she would have treated him differently at that point. But right. he was kind of ugly, and so she just went with it when she first meets him at the pond. What they end up having is more of a union of minds. A union of the mind and of the soul. Then they do a physical attraction. It leads to physical attraction in the end. Oh, does it? Oh, I guess. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it does. So it would seem. So it would seem. You never see it. They had a couple kids. So you have that. and But when I, so I guess what I'm trying to say is when I first saw Rochester, he was an intriguing, interesting character. Because I'm like, here you have, he, he's surly. He's a bit like Darcy, but he's a little bit edgier. But he has a friendly streak as well. You kind of get the sense that he's doing all this to protect himself from some secret, but also intrigued by this young lady. And he's not really, he's like the beast, right? <laughs> Is that the best metaphor we have for him? Is he kind of like the beast? You know, if you had to compare yes. this to one fairy tale, it actually wouldn't be Cinderella. It would, in fact, be Beauty yeah, and the Beast. The beast. Yeah, so he's, that's, that's who he is. He's the beast. Yeah. He wants everybody to think he's ugly and mean. He's got fangs, razor, razor sharp ones. And it's ones. because he has all these really killer dark claws. things he did in his past. I mean, Monster he did some, jaws. He did some legitimately dark claws, things. Monster and, claws, I think. For the feast. For the feast. Kill the beast. Hear him roar, see him foam, but we're not coming. Anyway, I'm sorry, Brandon. Post. When I was young, I ate five dozen eggs every morning to help me get large. This is a very different song than the song that we were... Uh, you were saying Mr. Rochester. He's like the beast. He's like the beast. And yeah, and so and it's clear even from that first scene where she comes to have tea with him and Mrs. Fairfax is there, Miss Fairfax, and mm-hmm. she's, she's fond of him and you're fond of Miss Fairfax, so you know that if she's fond of him, she's like Mrs. Potts. Right. Mm-hmm. If she's fond of him, there must be something there. It wasn't there before. There it's, must be what, Mama? It <laughs> so, wasn't there before. I'll tell you when you're older, Nathan. I found him intriguing up to that point, and then things went off the rails. 
you found him intriguing up to the point that he showed up and then things went off the rails. <laughs> well, you have the tea party and then even with Miss Ingram showing up, you realize that and then when does he I first was tell- fine with them just simply cynically deciding to go with Blanche Ingram. Yeah, and when was it you first hear the story of the his liaison with the, the French, French courtesan? Yeah, it's like they're walking by the That's before That's before all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and so you know that he has this dark past, and there's even more than that to it. Yeah. When he says things to Jane, like, oh, the that I should live with this guilt, I don't know. Yeah, and he talks about error and repentance and remorse and all that jazz. Mm-hmm. All and that jazz. All that jazz. Mm-hmm. And he's supposed to have these thoughts that you really don't. I mean, that is that is one thing that bothered me from early on, is she was amazed at his rock star romantic intelligence. Mm-hmm. That didn't really seem like rock star romantic intelligence to me. It kind of seemed like gibberish at points. But so I think that was one of the weaknesses of the book, actually, was she was trying to make him, I think, to kind of a Keats or Shelley sort of figure with his thoughts. He was this wounded figure who now had these high, jaded thoughts about life. Mm-hmm. And if you, I tried to read a couple of those portions. It was so the, awesome. He was like able yeah. to read her mind. And, and I'm not. Be a step ahead of her. And yeah, I fancy I, myself. I read your thoughts. They blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah, I fancy myself to be fairly on top of things and to be able to stay up with difficult conversations. And that conversation they had in the tea room, the first conversation they had, it was kind of gibberish at times. What he was saying about remorse and error, I don't know what he was trying to say, but it definitely was seducing her. Yeah. I think that that was the first instance you had of where it was going to go with Rochester. So Mm -hmm. I liked the concept of him. I didn't necessarily like the mechanics of some of how she was going about it early on. (laughs) I was... I was willing to see where she was going to take. Well, she bought me so she bought <clears throat> such so much goodwill with that first everything up to the hall to Rochester. Is Thornton Hall is that where what is? I, I'll tell you where it went off the rails for me. She oh, bought me so, so, so much goodwill <coughs> through uh, up until she she came to Thornton or Thornwell Hall or whatever it is that I was with her all the way up until and then she went and she had that whole thing with Aunt What's Her Face. Which is great. Uh, Which is awesome. Or she goes and sees Mrs. Reed. And then she comes back and Rochester proposes. That's when it all just sort of starts to f- slide off the rails. Because you have these scenes where now he's this like over the top, sentimental, terrible romantic that she has to sort of be demure and discipline him or whatever. But then he oh, just wait. straight up tells her like what he put on all, all of the big whole show of Blanche Ingram was all calculated to make her jealous from the very beginning. And all this other garbage about all of that is just like, oh, come on. Who is this guy? (laughs) Well, it reminds me of the difference between the novel, not that anyone should read these, but Silence of the Lambs. Hannibal Lecter is locked in a prison. Jodie Foster's character, whatever her name is, she goes and visits him. She gets advice. He plays mind games with her at the end of that novel. He escapes. And then he's this serial, in the novel Hannibal, he's this serial killer at large. And Hannibal Lecter becomes so much less interesting once all his cards are on the table. And once he's out there, you know, eating people and stuff, it's like the idea of what he could do is way more interesting than what he does. Than what he does. And it's like nothing could actually live up to, to be fair, nothing could actually live up to what he does. And to be fair to Rochester, I would say actually writing a good romantic hero <laughs> is much harder than writing a good, mysterious, baronic figure. But it does feel, I agree completely that it takes a nosedive and you know, it's like you're reading a well-written thing by a college, by a grad student, and then suddenly 
you get to Rochester declaring his love and the rest of the novel is written by a sophomore in high school or something like that. Like yeah. the, the depth of understanding, the morality, everything just like goes, yeah. d- goes downhill. It collapses. It caves in on itself. Um, it's where she reaches her, her moral limits, the outer edges of her her romantic emotional maturity. Well, it's like we, were, we learned with Rowling and Dumbledore, you cannot write a character that's better than you. You can't, yeah. you know, I, I guess you can in some sense, but sure. you know what well, I'm saying? Sure you can. You, you can, can imagine one. Yeah. I, Tolstoy did. Yes, but, but I have to believe but, there was but, something actually moral about Tolstoy, though. You there's know something I mean? moral about his imagination. Right. Yeah, I think that Levin was who Tolstoy could have and should have been. And he knew or who that. he aspired to be and what yeah. he knew that he should have that yeah. he like it's 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 like the Ira Glass quote that we brought up earlier that wasn't a quote mm-hmm. though it's like <laughs> the question is with Tolstoy he has a moral imagination that transcends his ability to live mm-hmm. morally right that's one thing but to have a stunted moral imagination right is a completely different thing and in both cases you're not able to live up to your ideals but you know if your ideals are stunted or deformed and that's where you really begin to hit the wall with Bronte is what you realize is part of what's great about the first part of the book is she's really able to capture what it is to be a broken and abused child and and then the rest of the book is just about broken and abused children pretending to be adults yeah while being incapable of overcoming the brokenness and immaturity <clears throat> because the author can't imagine she she herself is stunted in yeah. her in her That's moral right. imagination right and so she just can't take them any farther than she did she can capture the brokenness she can capture the immaturity she can ca- capture the abuse she can capture all kinds of things but she can't give them the happy ending mm-hmm. because she doesn't have the moral imagination to get there because she doesn't have it herself she doesn't have those goods. She's got everything else nailed to the wall, but she doesn't have that. And it's sad. It makes me sad. It made me sad for Bronte as I read it because I've, I just thought I didn't know any of your history. I didn't know anything. I just thought, what if did she? You start to imagine all of the things that could have happened to her as a child, yeah. to both give her such clarity on. <laughs> this brokenness and abuse and also such an opaque understanding of what healthy relationships look like and should look like. Opaque understanding being a very generous way to put her understanding, I think of. Well, I'm trying. I, I know you're trying to sympathize. I like you, 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 well, the thing is you deal with these people. I deal with these people all of the time, you know, from broken and difficult situations and circumstances. And I'm not from the cleanest background myself and you want but for so many people recovering from abuse or a broken home or whatever you know they just it's so hard to have a healthy family because they've never seen it before and it's you can tell them all you want to until you're blue in the face about what they should be doing and why and they don't have the tools to understand they can't put it all together because they're looking through a mirror that is spider webbed into a thousand different pieces. God can overcome and will overcome and does overcome a lot in people's lives, but that's miraculous work. And for most people, it's just hard. That's all. Yeah. Well, and we can have great sympathy for those people while also saying maybe they shouldn't create a universe. (laughs) And (laughs) when they do, 
it can be it's a pretty warped place to live yeah and, and it's it, got some weirdos and some yeah and that is the that's the case with this book there's is rochester Whoa. and st john are terrible people terrible people <laughs> yeah, and this... and so what you come to everything with bronte then comes down to to this worship of power mm-hmm. like everything is about power it's about power it's about power dynamics and it's about and so whether you're strong and powerful and courageous or manipulative and whatever, like it's all about the power that people can exercise over each other. It's just, yeah, it's disgusting. Mm-hmm. And another failure here. And I'm just thinking about all the young ladies who come away thinking that Rochester is the most amazing thing ever. And that Jane Eyre is perfect. You know, who really failed them was their English teacher. Mm-hmm. No kidding. Yeah. Read whoever this book English with open te- eyes. Yeah, whoever their English teacher was failed them. Mm-hmm. This is a potent and dangerous and extremely well-written book, and you got to take those things seriously. Give this book the credit that it deserves as That's right. a great piece of literature that yeah, can no, this change is people. Dangerous, this is a dangerous and affect book people. for your daughters. <coughs> it's a dangerous book for your daughters. Well, guys, well, there's so much to talk about in this, this, this sick, twisted puppy of a book. But a good one. But a good one, but also we like it. Or do we? Anyway, we'll, do. well, yeah, Brandon <laughs> likes it. We'll be back next week. Let's do some. Let's do some donor shoutouts. We're going to talk more about Rochester. We haven't gotten to St. John, that weirdo. My least favorite weirdo. No, I did not like St. John. <laughs> this book goes off the rails, people. It is a strange book. It's like you're going on just to find Disney. You know, it's a, it's a what is it? It's a big world after all. It's a, it's a small it's world after a all. Small, yeah. World after all, and you're happy. Everybody's waving, and mm-hmm. it's it's cool. The animatronics are realistic, and it's a great story. And then setting like the gates of hell open up. Mm-hmm. And here's Rochester dressed as a gypsy, mm-hmm. and he turns to you and he says, "You thought I was a gypsy? No, I'm Mr. Rochester. Hold on!" And then you like start speeding down, and then you're like, in, "Yeah, Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory tunnel." And it, goes crazy there's no earthly way of knowing <laughs> which direction the, the novel literally going. loses its mind yeah i know well let's talk about it more next week yeah but let's do some donor shout outs robert Ronda, the lovebirds robert Ronda, the lovebirds chelsea mortally chelsea mortally jake jake katie nathan not me nathan not nathan jim and annie little locally jimmy annie little locally lily of the valley lily valley andrew and esther the lovebirds esther lovebirds jake i need some shout outs from you for our people jake i need some shout outs for you for some people the inscrutable jenny z john David's Mighty Men Trucking for all your trucking needs. Jay and Katie, you are cold love cheese. Beth, my beloved mother. Fletcher, the woe-bedraggled wizard of yore. The off-white-dreddy-dodra. Hey, there. red-hooded lord of death. Red-hooded this day. To the dark-hooded lord The dark-hooded lord of death. He's red-hooded this day. Not the this day. Red-headed today. The incandescent <laughs> Meredith Jane to my Rochester. Rochester. Meredith. Joanna. 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 The elephant princess of all that is good and light. The elephant princess of <laughs> all. The elephant princess? The elephant princess. Oh, the elven princess. Or elephant princess. Or elephants on Ryan and Judith. Rockin' Ryan and Judith. Right, Judith. 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 Danny the dude. DJ Sammy G. Benny and Dana. Dana T. The Lovebirds. Eric and Catherine the Lovebirds. Catherine the Lovebirds. Professor X and Lady X. Professor and Lady X. Thanks for supporting our work, everyone. Maya. Oh, sorry, Maya. 
Maya. Maya. Maya. Maya. Maya. Maya. I'm talking about Maya. Maya. Dun, dun, dun. How did I skip her? That's weird. I guess because I was doing a bunch of nonsense. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to The Booketing. You can go to The Booketing. Nope. You can go to patreon.com forward slash The Booketing. You can pledge money and get cool stuff behind the paywall. Do it. Do it. Do it.